We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing our exploration of, of Zubair Siddiqui's book, uh, Hadith Literature. Uh, are we on page 50? I think 52. Okay. Because we ended, yeah, okay. 4.2c. Okay, let's continue. So, other Musnad works? So many other traditions compiled Musnads, including Abu Muhammad Abdul Hamid and Ibn Humayd and Ibn Abi Shayba. Yeah, uh, of all those names, the one that I'd recommend uh, just keeping in your mind would be Ibn Abi Shayba. You see his his name quite a bit. And there, the other ones, you know, uh, Abu Ya'la and such, they also appear, but Ibn Abi Shayba is one that, that appears over and over again. So four point three, the Musannaf works. Okay, so more important than the Musnad is the Musannaf. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Yeah. Okay, so it includes the most important of hadith collections, including Sahih al-Bukhari, Muslim, Jama'at al-Tirmidhi, and the works of Abu Dawood. Mm-hmm. So are those only in the like, Sunni paradigm? I mean, this, this book essentially is the Sunni paradigm, okay. right? Um, the, the, uh, in the Shia tradition, there's four... Uh, canonical hadith literature, hadith hadith books. In the Sunni tradition, there's there's these six, and here the two most prominent are in Musanna form. Are there any that are shared? Uh, any books that are shared? Not so much books that are shared, but there are many hadith that are shared. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in the the most simple way to think about it is that um, both sides, when they have a narration, they're looking at who the narrator is. Okay. And so in Shia tradition, privilege will be given to, uh, to the family of the Prophet, peace be upon him, on narrations, right? In Sunni tradition, um, uh, privilege will be given based on how close a companion is to the Prophet, peace be upon him. So usually it's Abu Bakr, Omar Uthman, Ali, Aisha, something like that, right? Uh, all of those five would be like the, the top five, not necessarily even in that order, right? Um, um, so that's, in the most simple sense, that's the difference, right? There are different issues in authentication and such. Um, but do you remember what a musannaf is? Um, isn't it... So musannaf is based on top. No, musannaf is topic. Yes, exactly. So uh, musnad is based on isnad. Yeah. Musannaf is based on topic. So Musannaf is kind of like, you know, our, our English language books where you have a book and it's just organized by the chapters and the topics and such. Yeah. And um, oh, another question I had is before you mentioned that Bukhari wasn't always the most popular Hadith book. Correct. So why yeah. so why does this say that the mm-hmm. most the most important Musannafs are Bukhari Muslim mm-hmm. if the opinion has changed? So um, <laughs> it's more like through time. Uh, it may be that the books that be, have the most duration become the most important. So just like the schools of Islamic law, there's four schools of Islamic law and Sunni tradition. In history, there might have been 30. Some of those got absorbed by a few of these four. Some of those just vanished through time, right? That are still studied by scholars, but uh, in today's world, they're not as useful, right? So Bukhari and Muslim... Uh, uh, for example, rose to the top over the generations. Right? Yeah. So 4.3a, the Musannaf of Abdul Raz, Razak. Yeah, of the Razak Sanani, yeah. So um, his work is the earliest Musannaf 
that in existence? Or so does that mean it's just the earliest one that we've preserved? Yes, okay. exactly. So he wrote in Yemen, and um, wait, yeah. is this Abu Bakr Abdul Razak ibn Humam or yeah. someone? Oh, okay, I thought you said Sana'a. Yeah, so Sana'ani means he's from Sana'a. Oh, Sana'a. Yemen, okay. Yeah. So he began the study of the of Hadith at age 20, and he studied with leading Hadith authorities such as Ibn Juraj, and he became one of the leading Hadith experts in his time. And later, many Hadith authorities would acknowledge their debt to him, including Yahya ibn Ma'in yeah. and Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And it is said that after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, people never traveled in as large of a number to meet someone as they did for Abdul Razak. And later, authorities differ on the quality of his work. Some think it's, it's reliable, others are more doubtful. So why would people have different opinions? Um, maybe they found some of the hadith in his work to be, to have fault, um, like faulty chains. Mm -hmm. So, so basically what it really comes down to is a particular scholar is using a particular method to determine authenticity or inauthenticity. So Bukhari has his method. Muslim has his method. Abdul Razak has his method. And the people who are critiquing them each have their own methods. So I think we mentioned before that, for example, Al-Hakim, um, uh, the Mustadrak of Al-Hakim, um, is, uh, is a collection of hadith that Hakim is saying are authentic, yet they're not in Bukhari or Muslim. Right? On the flip side, uh, one of the, the, the most prominent critique, uh, critics of, of Bukhari's collection is Daru Qutni, um, who is arguing that, okay, looking at Bukhari's text, it's probably about 98% uh, sahih. It doesn't mean that the 2% are, are fabricated. It's just that the other 2% are not as authentic as the other 98%, right? But the key point is that different people are using different methods to figure out what's authentic. So because the difference comes from in the authenticity of the chain of narration, does yeah. that mean that for sure every hadith in Bukhari was said by the Prophet uh, So uh, almost every hadith, yeah, right? Almost every hadith uh, in Bukhari is definitely said by the Prophet, peace be upon him. And all the remaining hadith most likely were said by the Prophet, peace be upon him. Even if a hadith is categorized as weak, it doesn't mean that the Prophet didn't say it. It just means we can't definitively prove that the Prophet said it. Right? Um, so that's what weak means. Fabricated is different. If it's fabricated, then we're saying this hadith, the Prophet is, uh, is uh, not being quoted properly. But what if you have a hadith where the whole chain is fake, but the actual text is authentic? Then what do you do? I mean, I guess you could have it in its own category, because if it's beneficial, then... So, so in terms of authenticity, it'd still be considered fake. How would we know that the Prophet, peace be upon him, said it? From other hadith that are authentic. So we'd rely on those. See what I'm saying? So let's say there's three separate hadith, meaning three, three separate chains that are each saying that the Prophet said such and such. Chain number one, completely authentic. Okay. Chain number two, kind of authentic. Chain number three, completely fake. Okay. So chain number three, you don't even use that. Okay. But how do you know that the Prophet said it? The authentic chain is saying that he said it. So you don't even, you don't even have to worry about the, the fake chain. You still keep those as a, as a reference at some point. But you don't use them. What if there is no other 
version of a chain that is authentic. You just yeah. have a hadith that chain. Yeah, and so then we have uh, we have no indication that the Prophet peace be on him said it, right? Should we still even look at it? I mean, we should save it, right? Okay. But um, we're not going to know if the Prophet said it until the day of judgment. Isn't the, the hadith something about traveling to China for knowledge? So there is that famous hadith where people raise the question, okay, did the Prophet, peace be upon him, know about China and such? Is it authentic that way? But generally it's considered to be an authentic hadith. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. So Kitab al-Sunan was one of his works, and he divided it into various books based on fiqh. Yeah. So, so <laughs> also in that paragraph, there's mention of Ibn al-Nadim. That's another important name to know. So Ibn al-Nadim put together this huge index of all the books of Islamic scholarship. And I think we have most of it preserved. And it's even translated into English. Uh, and so, so Ibn al-Nadim lists everything. And that's a really good resource for books that used to exist that we don't have anymore, or books that still exist. Of just any books that... Of Islamic scholarship, yeah. And what time did he do that? Uh, I don't remember. We, we can uh, look it up. Okay. So, for example, in modern times, there's one who, which is uh, this guy in Turkey. His name is Fawat Sezgin. And he's done something similar. He inherited this gigantic library. And, and so he's been putting together this, this large index of all these books. And it's not just books like an Islamic law and hadith. It's like books on engineering right? and other, other sciences. And so these, so you have some books that are the work of scholarship. They have other works that are sort of just compiling all the information. So you kind of have an idea of who to look for and where to look. The problem with Ibn al-Nadim's book, like I mentioned, is a lot of those books don't exist anymore. Right? They've, they've been lost through time. One additional other point that I, that I forgot to, to mention. Um, when we were talking about Abd al-Razak, it says that um, it's been skillfully edited and published by the Indian scholar Habib al-Rahman al-Azami. So <clears throat> one important thing to think about is that for the past few hundred years, most of the most important hadith work has been in the Indian subcontinent. Yeah. I mean, there's been important hadith work in different parts of the world, but uh, as of late, a lot of it has come from the subcontinent. Okay. Um, so the next section is the 4.3b, the Musanif of Ibn Shaiba. Ibn Abi Sheba. Ibn, oh, okay, Abi Sheba. It's a cool name, isn't it? So the son of the father of Sheba. <laughs> so his name is Sheba. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, what would that mean then? He probably he, he's uh, he probably has multiple Shebas in his name, in his family. Yeah. yeah. Um, so his grandfather worked as a judge of Lasit during the reign of Al Mansur. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So that was the Abbasid. Yes, nice. So there were yeah there were many Hadith traditionists from his family. And he related traditions to leading figures such as Abu Zarra, I don't know, Al-Bukhari, Muslim, and Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Uh -huh. So does that mean he would have been in their chain of narration? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so does that mean his grandfather worked for Al-Mansur? Probably as a judge, yeah. So was he Um, Not necessarily. Right? I mean, uh, you may have a corrupt head of state, yet some of the judges are still pious and upright. Or you may have a corrupt judge, and the head of state is pious and upright. Right? It's hard to evaluate. I mean, even, I mean, would we say that Mansur is corrupt? Not necessarily, but we would say he is a king and does things that kings do, some of which are good and some of which we don't appreciate. So you don't consider 
kings doing bad things as necessarily corrupt. Yeah, I'm saying they're being kings. I'm not saying it's okay. So think of even like, you know, the president of the United States. President of the United States might do a hundred things that are fantastic. Okay. Uh, might do a hundred things that we later discover are fantastic, but we don't understand now. And maybe does a hundred things that are just horrible. Right. And that's just part of the work. Right. That's why it's often good to stay away from politics. You know, Cause, um, it takes a certain type of person to, to work in politics, you know? Yeah. You sound like Machiavelli. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> His, his book was recently printed in 13 volumes, so oh. how recent? Um, the copy that I saw um, seemed very, very new. So this book is published, what, like around the 19-somethings or the year 2000, I think. So probably not just long before that. Yeah. So the next section is the Heiha Bukhari. Dun, dun, dun. 4.3c, yes. So the Sahih Bukhari is the most important of all Musanaf works. He questioned more than 1,000 masters of hadith. So, he, I don't know, like, I can't even imagine how he found all these people. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Well, a way to think about this is these aren't people just living on farms, right? The way we're taught is Imam al-Bukhari traveled around the world, and he saw this guy, you know, trying to get his horses to water. And he asked Bukhari, or Bukhari asked him, you know, do you know any hadith? And the guy says, yeah, sure, hold on. And then the man notices that the, that the, or then Bukhari notices that the man is trying to lead the horse to water by pretending to have um, a, a handful of water in his hand, even though he had nothing. Okay. And then the legend that we're told is that Bukhari looks at that and thinks, okay, this man's trying to fool the horse. He might be trying to fool me too, so no thanks. That probably never happened. Instead, think of the Muslim world at this time. This is about 250 years after the Prophet, peace be upon him. It's full of all these centers of learning. That's where the scholars are. So he's just going to all the different centers of learning. So these places that are mentioned, Balkh, Marv, Nesapur, Hijaz, Egypt, Iraq, those are all basically major centers of learning. And so he's just going to visit the scholars there. And Hijaz, is, what is, is that just like... Mecca, Medina. Medina. Yeah. And Egypt... It's probably Fustat, which later becomes Cairo. Okay. And in Iraq, it's probably Kufa. Right. And so these are just the centers of learning. So it'd be like, today I'm just going to all the, all the major madrasas in the world. The neat thing is that he would have to travel, you know, by horse or camel uh, to go to all these places. And so where is he getting his hadith? He's getting his hadith from all these teachers. A thousand teachers. Okay. Mashallah. So another thing I was confused about is that he used to seek aid in prayer before recording any tradition. Um, uh, he used to seek. Oh, what does that mean to you? I was confused by that. Uh, he prayed to Rukas Nafal for every hadith. Oh, like he used to pray before recording hadith. Yeah. Because I okay, I misread that. Yeah, exactly. It was like he needed help when praying. Mm -hmm. and, okay. Mm -hmm. So when recording hadith, does it mean he used to pray to Nafal and then? Put the hadith down as sahih? Yeah, so I mean, he's determined it's sahih. And he's doing turakas nafil, kind of like istikhara, right? Mm -hmm. uh, before he is, he's definitely going to put it down. So his collection has nearly 8,000 hadith. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's 16,000 rakats, okay, mm -hmm. uh, that he would have done. You know, like, I wonder if he was doing big surahs or, or small surahs. Yeah. <laughs> 
So he, he weighed every word very carefully, mm-hmm. and he devoted more than a quarter of his life to the creation of the Sahih. Mm-hmm. And many Muslims consider it second to the Quran, yeah, only second to the Quran. Mm-hmm. And he was born in Persia in the year uh, 194 after Hijrah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Bukhara, where's Bukhara? Bukhara is Central Asia, so like the Afghanistan, northern Afghanistan area, mm-hmm. all those stans, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, that general area. That's Bukhara. And in Bukhara, there's a center, that whole area is a center of learning, but there's one area called Samarkand, which is a cool name. What does Samarkand mean? It's like the place of candy or the place of sweets, oh. right? And, uh, and so a lot of scholars are from that area. So when it says Persian origin, doesn't necessarily mean Iran. Um, if you think of, okay, think of a map of the world. And so you have the Middle Eastern countries like Iraq, modern Middle Eastern countries, Iraq, Jordan, Syria, right? And then if you move to the right, you have Iran. And that whole stretch going all the way to the subcontinent was Persian at the time. So one of his ancestors, I believe, Bardizba, was taken captive during the Muslim conquest of the region. Mm -hmm. So was that conquest during the Abbasid Empire? Probably. And, um, or maybe it wasn't Baradizba, but Al-Mughira who accepted Islam. Mm-hmm. And then he had a son, Ibrahim, who had a son, Ismail. And Ismail is Al-Bukhari, um, yeah, Bukhari's father. Mm-hmm. And his father was a pious traditionist and was known for being very intelligent. But, and he also had for having photographic memory. But he was physically frail and died. I don't know if it was early um, but he left behind a considerable fortune to his widow and two sons I got the impression that was early because it said that um, Bukhari began his educational career under the guidance of his mother so yeah it's always the mom yeah I was saying that a lot of scholars of their time of his uh-huh. time used to um, have their mothers be their like guiders uh-huh. um, for their educational yeah. careers so was that for those scholars? Was it because their moms were, were like single parents, or was it just was it? It didn't matter. Um, in a lot of the cases, the the moms were single moms, right? Uh, where the father died, and now the mother is raising these children, and and the mother is determined that her children are going to be scholars, right? I mean, there's definitely many many cases where the scholar has both parents and such, but it's very interesting how many scholars there are. Um, who the mother was the was the key force. A Shafi is like that. Bukhari is like that. Al Ghazali is like that. Right, that the uh, the mother has determined or has been determined about about her son. So he finished his elementary studies at the age of eleven. So is that just basic reading writing? Probably, yeah. It's probably more than reading writing, but I mean back then, uh, back then the standard of education was much much higher, right? Oh. So to put in uh, put in perspective, by eleven he's probably a hafiv. Okay. Okay. And um, as well as all the other learning. And what's interesting, I don't know if we mentioned this before. Uh, today, Hafiz means you've memorized the Quran, right? Mm-hmm. And Qari means you're, you're basically, you're a reciter. Okay? If we went back 200 to 500 years, Hafiz meant you memorized the Quran, Bukhari, and Muslim. Okay. <laughs> and if you only memorized the Quran, you were called a Qari. Oh. Yeah. You had to memorize all of Bukhari and Muslim? Including the chains. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know people who have thousands of hadith memorized, 
And compared to memorizing Quran, memorizing Hadith is much harder. Because how do you how do you like remember each name in the chain? And sometimes there's an there's an empty space, right? You have to remember that. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. How is that even possible? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, these are illustrations of what, of what the, the human can do, you know, mashallah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so after he finished his elementary education at 11, he immersed himself in the study of hadith. And within six years, he mastered the knowledge of all the traditions of Bukhara. and All the traditionists. Oh, traditionists of Bukhara and everything in the books available to him. Okay, so in Bukhara, he's growing up. So all the hadith scholars, he mastered all of their books. And it, I don't think it said what age, but he eventually traveled to Mecca, or I guess after the six years, mm -hmm. he traveled to Mecca with his mother and brother for pilgrimage. And then he started a series of journeys looking for Hadith. Uh, I think with Mecca sort of as his base. Probably. So yeah. Go back there a lot. And he passed through all the important centers of Islamic learning. So you said it was like Cairo? So, so Fustat is one of them. I mean, there's quite a few. So Fustat, Nisapur. So here it's in Arabic, Nisapur. Um, Balkh. Balkh is in Afghanistan. Uh, what else do we have? So Samarkand is one of them. That's in Bukhara. Yeah. So it's like northern. It's, it's the Stans, that area. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, Kufa. Uh, Marv, mm -hmm. so that's another Persian town, and of course Medina, Mecca. Was Medina a bigger center of learning than Mecca? Was Medina a bigger, bigger center of learning? Uh, I want to say uh, yes and no. Yes, in the sense of scholars who are based there. No, in the sense of scholars all meeting each other in Mecca. They used to meet in Mecca. Yeah. Because of pilgrimage and yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but Allah knows best. Um. Oh, so is are his travels called Wander Jahri? That's a that's a German word. Basically, I mean, it's like he's just traveling for years. So for forty years. Yeah. And eventually, he wanted to settle down in Nisabur. Yeah. But I was a little confused about this. He had to leave after declining to deliver a lecture mm -hmm. at the request of uh, Khaled ibn Ahmed al Duhal. So usually, what that means is that the the head of the town. Like the mayor, the governor, the, the sultan says, I want you to do this. And remember we talked about before, some scholars say, okay, yeah, I should, because if I don't, they're going to find someone else to do it, less qualified. And other scholars say, under no circumstances, no, not at all. And so that seems like what he did. And so he had to leave. But he was just preaching, not preaching, but just giving a lecture. Yeah. So what's wrong with just giving a lecture? So suppose, so which hadith are you going to pick uh, if, the, if the head of state is sponsoring it? Are you going to pick hadith that insult the head of state? Are you going to pick hadith that support the head of state? Like, even that becomes a very tough question. What if it, does that, what if it has nothing to do with the head of state? It's okay. just something. Like yeah, but the point is that you have to, uh, you should be able to, as a scholar, you know, say and do what you think is appropriate, right? But if it means if you say the wrong thing, you're going to lose your job or lose your life, then that becomes a very different decision. Nobody's gonna do it. Yeah, and and so maybe so some some will say yeah, but I'm not going to no matter what, right? And others will say the same point that okay, if I don't do it, someone else is gonna do it. So 
I mean, I think both of those opinions are correct, right? And for me, I think it would really depend upon the individual moment. You know, there have been cases where, where government agencies had tried to recruit me. And at first I was interested and I decided, now I can't do it, right? So, like, reading the book, I've read a lot about different, like, male Hadith traditions. Were there any women who were, who studied Hadith? There's thousands upon thousands. And let's look for his book. Um, what's his name? He's the guy in England. Uh, Sheikh uh, Akram Nadwi has something like a 50-volume collection of the Muhaddithat. And I think I have a small version of that uh, at home. Yeah. So look up Akram Nadwi online, and he's at Oxford, and you'll find uh, some of his stuff. That's but literally thousands. Wow. Yeah. Did they get the same respect, though, as yeah. male Yeah, of and course. Were they given a platform to speak or lecture at, or is it only to female students? Uh, I would assume that they, because they're learning from and teaching male students, they probably they had the platform to, yeah, yeah. It's not like the whole chain is women. It's men, women, men, women. Yeah. But do they have to, um, was it, like, how, how did the teaching take place? Was it in the, like, was it like in a, just one area with people sitting together or is it like very strict setting? That Ella knows best, but usually for these types of classes, it'd be like, you know, like the science classes here, right? Where you have this big auditorium, right? And that's where the lecture is taking place. I, I don't know if this is true, but I think I heard that whenever the prophets was wanted to speak, they, had, they couldn't go in public. They had to speak from behind the screen. Well, that was the prophet's wives. That's in the, that's in the Quran. Yeah. So they, they couldn't go out in public at all? No, no, they used to go out in public, right? But if you were, uh, the, the ayah basically is telling them, if you're going to speak, you know, to a man, you got to speak behind a screen, right? But yeah, the prophet would go walk around in public with his wives. He would always take at least one wife uh, when he's going on battle. Yeah. But, so that means they were like niqab? Yeah, probably. Like some narrations uh, even describe like the type of niqab where you, where you can only see one eye, right? They had very, very strict rules. Yeah. But why, though? Because they're the wives of the prophet, peace be upon him. Think of, uh, uh, think of uh, how serious and cautious they have to be when speaking to men. Because, um, I mean, that can attract a man in a very, very incorrect way. And even the wives of the prophet, peace be upon him, when they're speaking to men, they have to speak with a kind of forceful voice. Right? Yeah. So, but, okay. Yeah. And that's all I have for the hadith. Yeah. Okay, very good. And I mean, a perfect example of that is Aisha. You know, Aisha was one of the main teachers of, of her whole generation, right? And, and she would be teaching behind a screen. She'd probably be speaking in, in, a, in like a, a tough uh, style. And many, many people are learning from her that way. But isn't that putting the burden of modesty on them? Uh, in this case, yeah, it is. But Here is putting the burden of modesty on the wives of the prophet, peace be upon him. But then isn't it, isn't it like contradictory to go and say that for everybody else, you don't have to do that because isn't that implying that the best thing is what they're doing? So I don't know about that, but um, uh, I mean, isn't the burden of modesty, for example, on the prophet peace be upon him, higher than everybody else? I'd say so. And the wives, it's higher than everyone else too. Yes. Yeah. I Meaning they're not they're not uh, they're normal humans, but they're not normal socially, and so they really have a much much higher standard to the point that they're told either you're going to get double punishment or double reward. 
So what what would you say to people who are like, oh, you know, you have to try to be like them, even though you can't be, but like you should wear niqab or something like that. So you just tell them, then you should be like the prophet, peace be upon him, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, so what page is that? We are on page fifty-four. Okay. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik. Wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alamin.